by way of introduction, I'd like you to think about next Sunday. I'd like you to think about next Sunday and what it would be like if you were to show up at Omaha Bible Church and walk in the auditorium, and for this illustration's purposes, you walk in the, uh, you walk in the auditorium. My brain, I've just completely lost the word for it. What's the other word for this? Sanctuary. Sorry. Let me start over. I'm going to go back and sit down. And, uh, man, somebody get me coffee. No, I'm just kidding. Rewind. We'll cut that from the tape. Beauty of technology. You come next Sunday. You walk in the auditorium. No, for this sake, it's going to be the sanctuary, not in an architectural sense, but in a theological sense. And as you walk through the doors, and it's looking more like a sanctuary you notice right away that the pulpit is moved to the side. You also notice that there's an altar up front. You also notice that there's a railing surrounding the front, or a fence as it's designed to fence. You also, design, you also notice, just for good measure, that I'm not dressed as I normally would be dressed. I have on priestly vestments. And I have a robe and all of the right stuff on. What would you think? What would you think? Would you like it? Would you not like it? More importantly, why would you think what you think? I hope if you walked in next week, it looks more like a sanctuary, theologically speaking, the pulpit is off to the side to draw attention to the altar and there is a rail and I have priestly vestments on, I would like to think that you would not be comfortable. And I would like to think that you would not be comfortable not just because of style, that style would be irrelevant, but because of theology not just to be nitpicky, but you would be uncomfortable because of theology, specifically the theology of the gospel. Because, at least historically speaking, when the pulpit is moved to the side, you're saying something. You're saying that central needs to be the altar. Historically, the pulpit is put in the middle where it's done because it shows the centrality of the preaching of the gospel, the preaching of God's word, because there is no altar, because there shouldn't be an altar, because what happens on an altar? Sacrifice happens on an altar, whether it be bloody or unbloody, as it is argued. And not only that, the fencing of the altar or the railing is to keep you out because there will be sacrifices on the altar and that is reserved for the duty of only whom? The priest who is dressed different than you because he is a mediator between you and God. So these things are not just about preference. They're actually filled with theological significance. Now, let's reverse it a little bit to get to Hebrews 8. By the way, I hope by the time we're done today, you would really have a problem with me wearing a robe. Let's think of it in a little bit different terms. Rewind, go back 
several thousand years. You're a Jewish person. The illustration won't work perfectly, but I think it'll work. And you show up. It wouldn't be Omaha Bible Church. Okay? You show up for your Shabbat service, your Sabbath service, and you show up for, for an official meeting of the Jewish people. And you notice right away that there are no priestly vestments. There is no altar. There's no fencing, so to speak. And you yourself are shocked and outraged. Because there needs to be an altar if there's going to be atonement. And there needs to be a priest if there's going to be a mediation between you and God. And not just anyone can go there, so there needs to be the fence. And you see how it goes. You would be shocked. What have you done? Where have you taken all of the things that are essential and necessary to our system? I've got some questions. Somebody's got some explaining to do. And the response would be, we don't need an altar because we have Jesus who is our high priest who gave himself up for us as the spotless lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And, and we don't need that because he's now at the right hand of the Father seated, a sitting priest because his work is done and he always lives to make intercession for us. And, and now we have to know that there's only one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. First Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, which hadn't been written yet, but we have it in our Bibles. And it'd be pretty tough if you're a Jewish person. It'd be pretty tough. Talk about culture shock. It's probably similar to the culture shock you would see if you showed up and it was the way I explained next week. You've gone from 60 to zero in 0.5 seconds. You had lots of stuff, lots of tangibles, and now you have none. And you're saying, well, who took my stuff? And, and maybe I can get around the, the, the Jesus thing, and you're explaining to me that he's the one the prophet spoke of. He's the one we've been anticipating. Let me show you. Let me connect the dots for you, with you. And may, maybe at least you're going to say, but, but can I at least have my stuff back? <laughs> it helps me. You know, it kind of helps me think it through. It helps me make it, have it be more tangible. And, and the response you get is, no, you can't have your stuff back. Because while the stuff had its place in the plan and purposes of God, it was always designed to show us the true ultimate substance, which is in heaven, which is where Jesus is now. And we long for his return or to go and be with him the true genuine substance, what you really want is him to be there always living, not being crucified again, always living to make intercession for you. You can do without the stuff because you've got the genuine substance. And Hebrews 8 helps you get there. Or if you're thinking about going back, it helps you to not go back there if you're a Jewish person. I grant most of us aren't Jewish. We're not struggling with this. But you see, by the way I introduced it, it has lots of secondary sorts of application. We need to understand, we need to keep understanding that our righteousness is in heaven, 
that there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, and we can rest in Him because He is the always living to make intercession for us high priest. He's our sufficient priest. And Hebrews 8 helps us with this. And in Hebrews 8, we have two reasons, if you'd like to follow an outline, there are two reasons why Jesus is better He is better than any and every priest, even the legitimate Old Testament priest ordained by God. He's better than them. I've mentioned multiple times a good title for the book of Hebrews is Jesus is better because the word better is used so many times. And here we have Jesus is better than all priests. Number one, first reason, because his priesthood is altogether better. That's the argument of the first five verses. He's better because his priesthood is better. Second reason we'll see in Hebrews chapter 8 is his promises are better. His priesthood is better. His promises are better. Chapter 8, verses 1 to 5 for the first reason. Chapter 8, verses 6 to 13 for the second reason. Jesus is better. He's the priest you need. He's the only priest you need. And we're going to see why that is the case. The end of the service will celebrate communion, which is going to be a perfect fit for us this morning because we're talking about the new covenant. I'll explain that as we go, as the promise that's better. And we know that Jesus says, this is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink. And so it's a great fit for us this morning to see some of this all come together. Well, let's look at this, this first reason Jesus is the ultimate, the sufficient the better priest, and that's uh, our better intercessor or mediator. It's because his priesthood is altogether better. And let's begin working through the first five verses. Now, to, now the point in what we are saying, verse 1 says, which goes back to chapter 7, which is Jesus is the Son. He's the sufficient final mediator who resides in heaven. So the point in what we are saying about that is this. Here's the punchline. We have such a high priest. We have him. You don't need to look elsewhere. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. And I'm going to use control, not go there for emphasis, but we're going to see it in the coming chapters. We have a priest who is seated, which doesn't even make sense because the priest work is always done or never done, however you want to look at it. It's never done. This one's work is done. So he's seated, and where is he? You don't need him to be right here and now. You, Where you really need him to be is where he is. He's at the right hand of none other than God himself as our intercessor. And so he's the great priest. His priesthood is altogether better. That's what we would want to see jumping off the page. Verse 2 says, A minister or a servant in the holy places in the true tent or the true tabernacle that the Lord set up, not man. What is the author of Hebrews doing? He's saying you don't want to go back to the old covenant system, the Mosaic system. You want Jesus New covenant system. We're going to go there and explain that in just a little while. But you, you want that because... Now we're talking about the true ultimate tabernacle, the true ultimate dwelling of God, the true ultimate tent, okay? Not made by man, but made by God himself. And think about this. He's not saying 
the, the, the mosaic one was, was a lie. He's not using true as in false. He's using true as in ultimate. Moses goes before God. God gives him instruction. And then Moses is in charge of putting together the dwelling of God, the, the tabernacle, the tent. But human beings are going to do that. And here we have, oh no, we have a much better mediator. Moses was a kind of mediator. We have a much better kind of mediator. And we're talking about the true, the, the, the ultimate, the, dare I say, uber, <laughs> the ultimate dwelling of God, the real thing in heaven where Jesus is. So why would you want to go back to the other? You wouldn't want to do that. Verse 3 says, For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this high priest, speaking about Jesus, also to have something to offer. Chapter 7, verse 27, we probably don't remember that, but if we're reading it in the flow of things, verse 27 tells us what Jesus offers. Who has a really, really good memory? What does Jesus offer? Jesus offers, verse 27 says at the end, once for all when he offered up himself. gives himself. Again, the spotless, without blemish, Lamb of God, giving himself to be the offering. Then verse 4 says, Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. That doesn't make a lot of sense unless we remember chapter 7 and the argument of chapter 7 is, yeah, Jesus doesn't fit the Levitical priesthood mode because he's of a different line, of the line of Melchizedek. So he doesn't fit this one. Now, don't, don't check out and get confused by all those details. Just know that he may be answering an objection here. The objection is, well, if Jesus is a priest in heaven, why wasn't he one when he was here? I didn't see him at the temple. Well, you know what? He's one in heaven, all right. But remember chapter 7, after the order of Melchizedek, it makes sense that he wasn't one while he was on earth here at the temple because you know what? He doesn't fit that line. It wouldn't even make sense for him to be that. It wouldn't make sense. And then we see a pretty amazing verse in verse 5. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. Well, that would be more reason why Jesus wouldn't be a part of that priesthood. Because he's not in the business of being a copy or in the business of being a shadow of heavenly things. Point being what? He's the real thing. He's the real thing. And let me insult your intelligence for a moment. Which is better? A copy and a shadow or the real thing? Duh, Right? Oh, yeah, Molly and I, we went to the movies a couple of weeks ago. And we went to the movie theater, and on the way in, we saw the poster for the movie. And so we just stood there for two and a half hours and admired the poster promotional because it's so much better than the real thing. Those people who went in and sat down and had a soda and popcorn, they were really missing out. <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. Doesn't make any sense at all. Now the poster might be helpful. It, it might be inspiring. It might be motivating to get you to go inside. 
But when you can go inside, you go inside because certainly the real thing is better than the shadow. You want the genuine, the real. That's the kind of argument he's using. Why would you go back to shadows and types when you're going to go for the real thing where it was intended to direct you? Verse 5 says, For when Moses was about to erect the tent or the tabernacle, that's what the word means, the dwelling of God on earth, he was instructed by God saying, He's going to quote Exodus 25. See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. That assumes that what Moses was shown on the mountain was the real thing. I don't know if he showed him the architectural drawings. I don't know what that looked like. Maybe Charlton Heston knows. I don't know. Those of you who are old know the joke, so if you know the joke, you should feel old. The rest of you who don't get it, just feel good. (laughs) Planet of the Apes is better anyway. (laughs) Wasn't he Planet of the Apes too? Yeah, I thought so. (laughs) Help me out, Frank. (laughs) And if you don't like that, join the NRA. Anyway, isn't he the same guy? (laughs) Okay. We're way off track now. The assumption is God showed him the real thing. He showed him the heavenly tabernacle so that then Moses is to go and he is to make the tabernacle. But which one is better? The heavenly tabernacle or the, if you will, reproduction? Well, let's not say the reproduction is bad because God told him to do it, but let's make sure that we know that the one that is the heavenly one is better. Just as Jesus is better as the high priest who is seated and who is seated in heaven. One person puts it this way. The Old Testament system, which is what he's referring to, the Mosaic system, was a copy of the heavenly reality. Obviously, The priority goes to the genuine, not the copy. And filling in the the lines a little bit here, after you read verse 5 and and, and you learn this about Moses and and then you realize he's trying to argue for Jesus being better, you have to stop and say, "And, and, and what has Jesus done? And what is Jesus doing? Oh, and by the way, where is Jesus now? Well, well, he's in heaven, right? There, there's the dwelling. That's where he is now. And he's interceding on our behalf. And obviously, this makes him better. In a sense, Moses himself should be able to tell you that Jesus is better. So what in the world are you doing going back to the Mosaic system? If Moses could talk to you, he'd say, you're crazy. Why are you grasping after shadows? The design of the shadow was to take you to the substance. Hebrews 1.3 After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, the heavenly dwelling. That's better. Hebrews 10.12, which was where we'll be in a couple of weeks. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. That's where he is. That's better. Christ has the substance, not the mosaic system or law with human mediation, human mediators, 
human priests, altars, and so on. Before we move on to see Jesus is better not only as a priest but as a promise fulfiller, just just by way of observation, the Old Covenant world, the Mosaic Old Covenant world is what in relationship to Jesus? I'm just stating the obvious here, but I think sometimes the obvious needs to be stated. The Old Covenant world, the Old Covenant system is what in relationship to Jesus? It's a shadow, right? It's a shadow. It's a copy. You see, this is why it doesn't make sense. This is why it doesn't make sense to go back and, oh, I want to live in the world of Mosaic law. I want to see this is the ultimate, this is the end, this is everything. It doesn't make any sense at all because... It's a shadow. It's a copy. It's designed to be what pushes you to the ultimate, the substance. Don't read your Bible. Don't read the Old Covenant law as if it's the end all. It's not very Christianly to do that. It's a shadow. We're back to staring at the movie poster thinking it's the fulfillment. No. No. Well, now we move on to the focus on the new covenant. If you're newer to the Bible, um, I'll do my best to make it real simple in as quickly a time as I can. Covenant is a big idea in the Bible. Okay? And we won't cover even close to all the issues. But you, you can figure this much out. There's old covenant and there's new covenant. Okay? A covenant is, a, is an agreement, and we have covenants, whether they be in our neighborhoods or uh, purchasing things, agreements. Somebody defined covenant this way. A covenant is a binding agreement which provides an established basis for interaction between its parties. It's a good generic working definition for now. Old covenant, mosaic, we could say, law of Moses, right? Old covenant, new covenant. Now we're talking about Jesus establishing this new covenant in his blood. It's pretty straightforward. We could talk about it a little bit more and say there are conditional covenants in the Bible where you must do this or else. Unconditional covenants in the Bible where God makes this promise and God himself is going to make sure that it comes to pass. Old covenant, new covenant. Okay? So the argument in Hebrews is you go for new covenant. New isn't always better, but in this case it is. In many cases it is. You want new covenant realities because we're talking about in heaven, not a type, not a shadow, not a copy, the genuine article, new covenant Christ based upon the work of God and the work of God alone. It makes no sense, therefore, to go and embrace the old covenant reality based upon your responsibilities, your performance, and you're never going to make it. Well, more could be said, but that's enough to at least kind of get us moving. Jesus promises, the new covenant promises, are altogether better. And this is what we see in the remainder of our passage. Verse 6 says, But as it is, this is in contrast to Moses in verse 5. 
right? Tabernacle in verse 5. Shadows in verse 5. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as, I love the way he says it, much more excellent than the old. That is much more excellent than the Mosaic law. Much more excellent than the old covenant. Is the new covenant much more excellent as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. He couldn't be more emphatic in the way he's putting it, right? Much more excellent, better, better. And we're, we're set up for this by now. For reading Hebrews and working through Hebrews, Jesus is better on so many different levels. New covenant realities are better on so many different levels. I just jotted down a few of them from memory. He, he's better because he's without sin and he offered himself. He's better because he's the priest who never dies. It's better because he's a priest according to the oath of God, the swearing of God. He's better in the new covenant, therefore is better because he is the son, the eternal son. He is better, new covenant is better because his sacrifice is final. We've got all that under our belt, but then verse 6 he ends by saying, it's better because it's enacted on better promises. Not only is the mediator better in what he's done and who he is, but now it's enacted on better promises. Now we have something far greater. What's offered to us, what we don't have offered to us, is that if you do the right thing, it'll be well with you. Instead, we have Jesus being the one. He is the securer, if you will, and he's going to give us these great things that they didn't have in the Old Testament, or excuse me, Old Covenant world. Look at verse 7 now, transitioning. Explanation of the Old and New Covenants. Verse 7 says, For if that first covenant, which is which one? Mosaic covenant, right? Old covenant. For if that first covenant had been faultless, can't believe he said that, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. that's, That's pretty risky to say that, because if you're saying that If it had been faultless, he's suggesting what about that first covenant? It's faulty. There was fault to be found. Oh, man. Verse 13, if you just drop down there with your eyes, calls it obsolete. This is no small thing. This is no small thing at all. But his argument for this is is deluxe. It's it's a masterful kind of argument. And it's worth seeing. It's worth seeing if if you're a Jewish person to connect some of these dots. It's worth seeing if you're not a Jewish person because you're going to see, again, once again, I keep emphasizing this, but I'll do it again. But once again, this isn't just somehow all of a sudden there's this crackpot named Jesus who was a nobody who decided to, you know, put a bathrobe on and get a big following and says, I'm the guy. And all of a sudden we've we've hijacked, if you will, the Old Testament to make all this stuff happen. He's making the point and arguing, no, 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 no. This is all part of the fabric and the system of how it's supposed to be. He's the legitimate one. That old covenant, the Mosaic law, it had a built-in fault. It had a built-in fault. Now, what he's not saying is it's inherently bad. In fact, you even see in verse 9, God calls it my covenant. So it's not not inherently bad, but it it has a built-in 
termination point. You want to use the fancy word. It has a built-in terminus. It's going to end. It has borne on dating. <laughs> like we would have on food. When God himself designed it, he designed it to only last for a certain time to accomplish a certain purpose. That it would one day, by design, be obsolete. In that sense, it's faulty. In that sense. It's not going to be lasting. And what's amazing about the argument is it doesn't come from Christians. You know, this isn't, this isn't somehow imposed by, by Peter. This isn't imposed by Paul or Mary or some other 60s rock group thing. Anybody get that? Come on. First hour is sleepier and they at least get my bad jokes. Point being, this isn't some kind of Christian agenda. Oh no, because as we're going to see, the Old Testament talks about a new covenant, Jeremiah 31. And if you have a new covenant, that means there's an old covenant. And you have the verbiage that the new covenant is going to replace the old covenant. And so built in, see this? Built in the old testament is this argument for the old covenant going away because there's a new one and jesus is the mediator of the new covenant as the fulfillment of the old quite honestly which is not his emphasis in our text here We saw this last time, too. I realize this is a little bit technical, but I, I do want you to see this, and it came up last week as well. In chapter 7, uh, he, he uses Psalm 110 to show that this is, this is natural for this to happen. This isn't a Christian agenda. This is a Bible agenda from God to have it unfold like this. This is, this is happening within. Um, uh, theologians like to use the word organic. Okay, This, this isn't outwardly opposed. This is pure and natural and genuine that it's supposed to be this way. Okay? The first time we hear about the New Covenant isn't in the New Testament. It's there all along. It's built in. It's how it's supposed to be, which becomes very, very important when it comes to the legitimacy of Christianity and why a Jewish person should embrace Jesus and why somebody who is Jewish and has embraced Jesus shouldn't go backward. Then we have Jeremiah 31. I'm told it's the longest single citation of the Old Testament in the New Testament, which is interesting. Let's go ahead and work through it, beginning in verse 8. For if he finds fault with them when he says... Now the emphasis is on the people. But look what it says in verse 8. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish... That established word is a completion word, a perfection word. Maybe using that word here because he's been emphasizing perfection of Christ, perfection of the people who are related to Christ, chapter 2, chapter 5, chapter 7. Then when I will establish, I will complete, I will bring to completion, I will bring to perfection a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. And that's what Jeremiah says back then, that it's still future, it's still coming. But the reality is, Jesus is going to have us to know that this, this is the new covenant in my blood. 
Hebrews, the author of Hebrews wants us to know this isn't still coming. This is a reality now. If it's still coming, you can keep living in the old covenant world. This isn't still coming. This is reality now. Verse 9, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. Clearly a reference to old covenant mosaic system. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. By the way, that was characteristic of that to happen. Unfaithfulness on Israel's part. Then verse 10, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. Now we've got something, we've got transformation happening like it didn't happen in the old system. What's interesting is in the old, they were supposed to know the law of God. Read Deuteronomy chapter 6, and there were all kinds of systems in place for them to learn. But the problem is, again, they didn't. The problem is that there, there's no transformation of heart. There's no, there, there can just be external connectedness as people belonging to the nations. There's going to be something that changes, something new that's genuine, internal, spirit-wrought in the new covenant. And then verse 10 says, I will be their God and they shall be my people. Once again, I would have you know that that, that kind of talk is, is, is in the Old Testament. That was, that, that was spoken of. But now, new covenant, we've got some kind of new, again, based upon transformational, based upon the work of God, taking away an old stony heart, giving a new heart of flesh. Now we've got something new and genuine. And they're going to be the people of God like they hadn't been before. This isn't new talk, but, but it's, it's new enablement. It's new in a, it's in a new sense. Greater closeness than before. We're going to get more of this now as we keep reading. Verse 11, And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. Notice the intimacy again. They shall all. Now he's talking about individuals. They shall all know me. This is broad. This is inclusive. This is intimacy. Knowing me from the least of them to the greatest. Something different in the new covenant economy and a new covenant world in the old as far as this closeness of God. By the way, this would make sense when you don't have the priestly system anymore, when you have your high priest who is in heaven and you don't go through the mediator, human being mediator, other than the man Christ Jesus. Verse 12 says, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more, which is also a big, huge deal when you think about remember our sins no more. Not only does God remember our sins, but in the old covenant world, we remember our sins all the time because we have to keep doing sacrifices again and again and again and again and again. In fact, we can't forget about our sins because of the sacrificial system. And here, new covenant world, this is the new covenant in my blood. Jesus is now going to be uh, the, the minister of the new covenant, the mediator of the new covenant, and it's going to be you don't remember the sins anymore. So you enter into this fullness and this greatness of the new covenant world in Christ. Why would you want to go backward? And I won't lie to you and say the new covenant stuff is challenging. 
so challenging that some people say, well, since he promised this to Israel, and it seems to be so thorough that we're not in the new covenant now. And I would have to suggest to you that that's thoroughly problematic. If that's the case, then we're in the old covenant and we should be doing sacrifices. And the book of Hebrews doesn't make any sense. And Jesus, quite frankly, doesn't make any sense. So with all my heart, I believe that Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant and he is my mediator and we are living in the world of the new covenant world. I'm a new covenant Christian. Okay? I'm an ambassador of the new covenant, if you will, to borrow from Paul. That's the whole argument of this book. That th- these are the realities. Don't go for the shadows. New covenant, yes. Now that doesn't mean that, that, that there isn't promise that hasn't been entered into with Israel. There's room for that. There's need for that if you read the rest of Jeremiah 31. But here as the nations, interesting Jeremiah is the prophet to the nations. And as this is related to other covenants, there's, there's built-in room, built-in place for the nations, which would be us. But we most certainly are new covenant saints, new covenant believers. But once again, all of these things in, the, in their fullness, you could say we haven't experienced. We're still needing to learn and, 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 and we haven't entered into this fullness of knowing God the way we would want to. The perfection that is in Christ has not been fully realized by us. This is like the Bible even saying things like we're, we're glorified, but we're not glorified. But we're as good as glorified, Romans chapter 8. John tells us that when we see Christ, we'll be made like Him. Well, we're, we're, we're on the track for that. It's a complicated issue. But it's not insurmountable as far as what the point is. The point is, we can know God intimately as New Covenant believers like we couldn't apart from the work of Christ in the New Covenant. We will know Him. Now, here's another thing that I think is helpful. Don't miss this. When you're reading through Jeremiah 31, and you read through the Old Testament, quite frankly, you've got a system that is very much patriarchal, led by official leaders who function as mediators. And if you want to go to God, you go through Moses. This is why these books are so problem, problematic that are published sometimes um, that, you know, if you're not having all these experiences that Moses is having, then you should feel like, you know, you're not really getting it. And you learn all this from the Old Testament. Wait a minute, you read the Old Testament. All, the, the people, by and large, are not having the mountaintop experiences. Who's having the mountaintop experience? It's Moses. And if you want to have that kind of experience, you have to go through Moses. And I think a big, uh, a big transformation that happens between Old Covenant and New Covenant is... Now it's personal, not through the patriarch, okay? Not through the clan leader, if you will. One scholar puts it in these ways. The old covenant was tribal and representative, even according to Jeremiah 31. But a day was coming when it would not be like this. New covenant. The old covenant was not sufficiently transformative also in Jeremiah 31, but the new covenant will not be like this. You go to learn from the priests even. 
You go to learn from the kings even. New covenant world, not like this. Oh yes, there might be giftedness because there's multiple kinds of giftedness in the body of Christ, but it's peer giftedness among the brethren, brothers and sisters in Christ gifted in different ways. But I think it is important to understand that there's this distant representative tribal kind of thing and then there's this personal intimate each one each one if you will mountaintop experience personal because we have a high priest better covenant new covenant who always lives to make intercession for us we just go right to him we go right to him well let's let's begin wrapping things up in verse 13. Lots more could be said about New Covenant, Old Covenant. We won't do it right now. Verse 13 says, In speaking of a New Covenant, He makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Could be puzzling. It is puzzling. My best shot at at it is in great company. If Hebrews is written in the late 60s, A.D. 67, 68, 69, destruction of the temple doesn't happen until A.D. 70. If the temple is still around when he says these things, this would make a lot of sense. You can look down the street and see all of the sacrifices still going on and you can see the priests. But not for very much longer. And that may be what he has in mind here, but regardless, the point is the same. Why would you go back to an old covenant system? Or for your sake, why would you go back to an old covenant-like system when the substance belongs to Christ? New covenant reality, personal not through anyone other than the one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Well, now to to lead us into communion, don't shut your Bible quite yet. I don't know if you noticed this or not. I've saved it to the end. It's one of my favorite parts. Throughout this new covenant declaration, you have this emphasis. I will. I will. I will. I will. I will. I think some six times the divine I will comes through. What a contrast. What a hope-filled contrast between Old Covenant and New Covenant. Old Covenant world. When the, when the people hear, hear from Moses and they hear God's expectations after Moses meets with God, here's what they say. Exodus 24, verse 7. All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. We will be obedient. Read between the lines. What? Liars. They boasted. We'll obey God. We'll do it. We'll keep the old covenant law. Crashing and burning. Crashing and burning. Crashing and burning. It is like a battlefield with all of the crashing and burning. 
And so in the new covenant, God says, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. It's great. Why would you want to trust in a system like this that's designed to show you and lead you to this system? It doesn't make any sense. And then, interestingly enough, when we hear from Jesus, who is, by the way, born under the old covenant system, under the law, what does Jesus say? What's the tenor of what comes out of Jesus' mouth again and again and again? I will, I will, I will again and again and again because he actually, truly, genuinely does. He is the one who does what the people said they would do and never did, which provides opportunity then for him to fulfill the law on our behalf. And now we enter into new covenant realities. Do you see? Just a sampling. Hebrews 10, 7. Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. Verse 9. Behold, I have come to do your will. Or even John 4. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and accomplish his work. And then it's in John 5, verse 30. Then it's in John chapter 6, verse 38. If you want to be Pauline and borrow from Paul, Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 8, becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross? His I will is so extreme that he is the obedient one, obedient even to the nth degree, to the point of death on a cross to fulfill God's law. I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. It's so good. It is And now it makes a lot more sense how he can fulfill that Mosaic law. How he can be the one who is the mediator of the new covenant. Legitimately so and not by sleight of hand. Not by discounting the old, but by fulfilling the old. You see? It's really amazing. New covenant realities, fulfilled in Christ, fulfilled by Christ, leaving us really no choice, no sane choice, but to embrace Him and turn our backs on shadows that were meant to push us toward Him. And yes, Jesus does say in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 25, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. He's the fulfiller of it. He's the mediator of it. He gives his life. He's the great substitute. It's in him. Trust in him. Don't trust in somebody else. Mediation is in him seated at the right hand of the Father, always living to make intercession. Let's pray. Father, thank you for time this morning looking at these things, these things that are 
not simple things. These things that are things we continue to learn about and find answers to. But we do know this. We do know that Jesus is the fulfiller. Jesus has done everything right. He is the one who is fit to be our high priest. He is the one who has been accepted by you, even on our behalf. And so I pray this morning that as we contemplate and as we think about whether or not we want our stuff back, that we would see that it was all designed to point us to the substance which belongs to Christ. Lord, thank you for giving us even communion to help remind us that the substance is in Christ. Christ who is not here. Christ who is where we want him to be and need him to be at your right hand. We are grateful that we have the Spirit of Christ and the Holy Spirit here with us and dwelling us. And we're grateful that he leads us and teaches us and guides us. In Jesus' name, amen.